0: an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God?
1: That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast,
0: a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. It's great to be with you. This is episode 68. And as always, I'm excited to share this conversation with you. The um, Life After God members community on Facebook is going super well. Uh, We're having some amazing conversations there, and it's been inspiring to hear everyone's stories. Um, We'd love to have you join us. And as always, I just want to remind you that this podcast is made possible by the members so that it can be available for free to everyone who wants to listen. So a huge thank you uh, to all the members and supporters of this podcast at the Life After God Patreon page. Members are those who contribute at least $5 or more per month on the Patreon page. If you would like to become a member and invest in the work of helping individuals form a vibrant life after God for themselves, you can go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and sign up today. Uh, I throw out a few members-only perks along the way every now and then. It's a, fun, it's a fun space. You will get regular updates from me through Patreon as well as on the Facebook group. I want to say a special thanks to the four new members that have joined since the last episode. Brenton, Christy, Fred, and Picha. You guys are awesome, as are all of you who continue to support this show faithfully month after month. Thank you so much for all that you do to keep this show on the air and free for everyone who wants it and needs it. So it has been quite a while since I put this much time into preparing for a podcast interview. I probably spent... 20 to 30 hours reading and researching before talking to my guest this week, Dr. Christian Smith. Christian Smith is the William R. Keenan, Jr. Professor of Sociology and Director of the Center for the Study of Religion and Society at the University of Notre Dame. Smith is well known for his research focused on religion, adolescence, and emerging adults and social theory. Smith received his M.A. and Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1990 and his B.A. from Gordon College in 1983. He was a professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for 12 years before his move to Notre Dame, where he is today. Christian is the author of at least 17 books by my count, including the extremely influential book, Divided by Faith. Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America, published in the year 2000. Uh, This book was really influential to me and helped shape my own sort of political racial consciousness uh, as it relates to the church back when I was a pastor. His new book that we're going to be discussing today is entitled Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Can't Deliver. As Christian notes in the beginning of our conversation, there are three main parts to his book. In this conversation, I want to note that we only cover one section of his book. We took up an, almost an entire hour just talking about that. And if we had progressed into some of the other areas, it would have been a very long podcast indeed. But the part about atheism and morality, uh, the first couple of chapters of this book, is what we go over in this conversation. I also want to note something. Um, for some of you, his use of the word atheist in the title atheist overreach, what atheism can't deliver, might irritate you. You you might be thinking atheism doesn't promise to deliver anything. Atheism isn't a moral philosophy and really doesn't make any promises. It's simply a claim about the existence of God, a position on the existence of God. I completely agree. I'd like to suggest a reason that he uses the word atheist in the title and throughout the book. Uh, first of all, I think The word atheist is eye-grabbing and probably a marketing choice on the part of the publisher, which is completely understandable. Um, But his claim is not that atheism has within it particular moral claims. In fact, his argument is actually the opposite, that atheism is essentially amoral and does not make moral claims. It's not so much what atheism can or can't deliver. It's a question of what particular atheist authors claim about the morality of human beings on naturalistic assumptions. So from Christian's viewpoint, as we discuss in the episode, atheism roughly equals naturalism. And on naturalism, how good can we reasonably expect people to be? Some atheist naturalists claim that naturalism can make bold, universal, moral claims. Sam Harris famously attempted this in his book, The Moral Landscape. Christian, along with many others, including atheists, say... This claim is way too much and is naive about human nature. I say all this at the outset to clarify that, to my understanding, Christian is not saying that we atheists think atheism comes front-loaded with moral claims. Rather, he is pointing out that some atheists make bold moral claims on the basis of naturalism, as if evolution will take us to a sort of moral utopia. If you listened to my conversation with John Gray in episode 63, you will recognize some of these same themes. And you may want to go back and listen to that episode as it's a natural pairing with this one, I think. Finally, before we get into this conversation, a quick shout-out to my friend, friend of the show, periodic guest host and social media manager for Life After God, Brian Peck. This past weekend, Brian was skiing and broke his leg pretty badly, just got through surgery a day or so ago, and just want to say, Brian, we're thinking of you, my friend, and hoping you heal up quickly. Now, without any further delay, here is my conversation with Professor Christian Smith. Dr. Christian Smith, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks for having me. I
1: look forward to talking together.
0: It's been fun exploring your book, and I, I wanted to um, share a little bit of background. I I heard about your book, I forget how, I'm always sort of searching the internet for things that interest me, and it popped up, and the name of your new book is Atheist Overreach. Um, And we'll talk at length about about that in a moment. But I saw your name, and it seemed so familiar to me. I I have uh, several theological degrees, and I was a pastor for 20 years, and um, I thought, I wonder if it's the same uh, Christian Smith of, you know, making the Bible impossible, and then... And I thought, I wonder if it was about the same Christian Smith from the segregated churches on Sunday morning kind of uh, sociological book that was so popular a few years ago. And so, sure enough, all the same person. So, Yeah, uh,
1: Divided by Faith. That's me. That's can't you. Keep, can't keep me in one narrow discipline. You know,
0: <laughs> I know. That was great. So I'm, I was doubly excited to have a chance to talk to you because I've been an admirer of your work. I mean, you've been... I think, instrumental in um, keeping the church honest in a number of um, important ways over the years. And, and now you've turned your attention and hoping to keep atheists honest, I suppose. So um, so yeah, so I'm excited to read it. Um, I'm grateful to have received a copy from the publisher. And um, it's a slim volume and, and sort of, you know, fairly dense, like you get right into it. So um I was really, really excited to read it. And actually I've I'm familiar with some of the other works that you cited. Philip Kitcher was uh on my podcast a couple of years ago mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about his book, um, Life After Faith. And so yeah, I now I really want to go back and reread his his book. But why don't we start by just uh, maybe give us a little bit of um background on on this book, what made you want to write it and what is your Sort of, sort of central point that you're trying to make, or that you a question that you want us all to consider.
1: Right, sure. Um, so I'm a sociologist, first of all. I, I'm very interested in philosophy and ethics and science, but my disciplinary home is sociology. But I do sociology from a kind of a philosophically inflected perspective, and sometimes I turn that around and do sort of philosophy-ish or social theory, at least from a sociologically inflected uh, perspective. Um, I'm interested in religion broadly. I always have been. One of the main things I study, although not the only thing I study in sociology, is religion. Uh, I find it to be a really fascinating aspect of human personal life and social life. It's much more fascinating to me than, say, why people work in occupations or have families. That's relatively straightforward to me, but religion is kind of a strange thing sociologically speaking. So mm-hmm. it's what I study. And um, I also am, I, I think it's fair to say I'm a realist about most things. I'm kind of skeptical. I'm fairly open-minded. I like to consider various perspectives on some things. Um, I often think that the kind of reasons that people give in general for what they do or what they believe don't really make a lot of sense (laughs) or strike me as having a certain amount or a lot of BS going on in them. So I've, I've just, I mean, I'm an intellectual. I've just been trained to look for good rational arguments, to be skeptical about claims and positions that really don't seem to add up. Um, I'm especially tuned into, um to what Alistair MacIntyre calls emotivism, which is, is sort of in the breakdown of many traditional ethical systems. We've sort of devolved, or many of us in our culture, to what we really mean by something is wrong is it's yucky to me. I don't like it, but that there's no real rational justification for that position. Hmm. That seems to me problematic. And I also have a kind of an, a niche in... Uh, uh, suspicion about people smuggling in presuppositions and sort of carryovers from a former era or a former part of their life into a current, into a current, uh, way of thinking now that is kind of alien to that way of thinking. So, uh, whether it's religious people who I'm sort of take a Nietzschean view and say, yeah, you know, that doesn't really make sense. And you really don't have any good reason to believe that, all the (laughs) way around to atheists who seem to me, some, not all, but some who I've read, make claims that I don't think add up. And it seems to me they're actually smuggling in pieces of uh, ethics or assumptions from actually religious heritages. I just like to have a conversation about whether that really works or not. So that's that's where the book comes from. That's a long-winded explanation of where the book comes from. Basically, I've just read a whole bunch of atheist stuff that has jumped out to me as like, really? I don't I don't know if that makes any sense. That's
0: a- <laughs> no, that I think that's a helpful background. And I, I, I appreciate you talking a little bit about your um viewpoint, your standpoint as well as a sociologist. And um and I I guess um you know, maybe now's as good a time as any to ask you about your sort of your personal sort of confessional standpoint. I mean, I, I assumed and maybe I'm wrong, but I assumed you're a you're a Christian, a practicing Christian.
1: I was uh, raised uh, in a Christian family and have spent my adult life uh, that uh, as a committed Christian. Uh, I would lo- what I would like to say. I know some people will dismiss this. I would like to say that's not really relevant for the argument of this book. The thing I want to make clear uh about this book is it's not a work of religious apologetics. It's not <clears throat> it's not arguing that there is a god or that atheism is wrong. I think uh an atheist could have written this book. The questions it raises about what some atheists say I think are valid questions from any point of view. So, I mean, again, there's a lot of qualifications in here. But, but, I'm not saying that all atheists say the things I'm critiquing. This is a critique of some atheists. Um, And the book, again, the book is not an argument. It's not a defense of theism. It in no way suggests that religion, religious claims are true, or that atheist claims are false. It's really an argument about. If atheism is true, what are the implications that rationally follow? Mm-hmm. And and do do some of the the approaches or the justifications for atheism that some atheists offer do they
0: really make sense? Yeah, and I think you know having been a Christian for most of my life and having sort of um, found my way out of Christianity, I guess, and into a uh, secular humanism for better or for worse, I I think for my life for the better. Um, I I can say from an atheist perspective that I didn't feel that it was a work of apologetics. And and so I yeah. hope that's um, uh, reassuring to you, not that you need reassurance, but um, I, I found it fascinating. And I think that even as a, when I was a Christian, I would read Christopher Hitchens because I thought those arguments would make me a more well-prepared, uh, more aware Christian. So mm. likewise, I think atheists do well to take seriously the critiques of others, whether they be humanists or Buddhists or Christians or whoever they are, um, to, to say, wait a second, from my vantage point, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I, I appreciate that.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, again, my goal in this book is uh, to try to help improve our arguments, to try to communicate more clearly, to try to think more clearly, not to uh, try to establish one or another point of view as the right point of view.
0: So by now, our listeners are probably thinking, so what is the argument? Let's get to it. Like, what is the yeah. argument? What is the so, point you're the making?
1: The argument of the book is essentially captured in the title, Overreach. Mm-hmm. So what I'm, I'm not saying atheism is wrong. I'm saying when I read a lot of atheist uh, books and articles, it seems to me that on various crucial uh, issues, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them overreach in what they claim and the book has three substantive uh focuses the last one is whether human beings are quote unquote naturally religious uh, that is what if philosophical anthropology what are human beings like right and whether human beings are or aren't naturally religious matters a lot in this debate this the middle the middle uh issue is um science and it's an epistemological question of can to what extent can science establish that a god doesn't or does exist Mm -hmm. that's a huge argument you know we have intelligent design people and creationists and and you know everything and i don't resolve that i have a much more focused argument but and then the first two chapters which is i think is the main part of the book has to do with morality and it centers around the question uh, can we be good without God? and i then I asked the question, well, what the heck do we mean by good? How good? Uh, and and for what reasons? and can we are we justified in believing in universal benevolence and human rights if there is no God? so that that and my claims are some atheists claim more than they have rational justification to claim about those topics.
0: So you you um, focus in on um, some names that will I think will be familiar, like Sam Harris, um, and others that won't be as familiar, like Philip Kitcher. I mentioned earlier that Philip was on my podcast a, few, a couple of years ago when his book Life After Faith came out. And I found it, um, first of all, I found it way more academically dense than the title led on. And so I found it challenging, and I, I recommend it to people. Um, so it was fun to interact with some of the people that um, – to hear you interact with some of the people that I've read.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: some, um, some of the other authors I, I haven't given as much um, credence to, uh, Figdor and, and Bayer. I, I haven't really – I mean I read their book and I didn't really uh, – I found it kind of like you found it, which was a little bit surface level and, and not very um, uh, thorough in, in the argumentation. Um, But if I understand you correctly, what you're essentially saying is that some atheists um, will say that there's a rational justification on, say, evolutionary grounds to believe that human beings will have evolved and will continue to evolve to be moral beings and to be just in a universal sense and be good in a universal sense, not just to the people that they love and are are closest to the way we might expect evolutionarily, but that we would go beyond that and, and express um, justice and mercy and all the rest to people that are far outside of our domain of influence. Is that, do I kind of have it right there?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one way to put it. Uh, another way that's close to that is that a number of atheists who I have read basically say, look, we have really good reason to say and to believe and to act that even if there is no God, uh, we live in a purely naturalistic universe, um, we have reason to, uh, to have a universal ethic of benevolence toward everyone, to believe that everyone has a dignity that must be respected and honored, that we sh- and, uh, and uh, we should be altruistic. We should share material goods all around the world uh that we should that we should honor the human rights the natural human rights not the not the socially constructed but the real human rights of all human beings everywhere it's a very very high standard it's a very tall order it's a it's a very strong form of humanism and uh m- my my argument is that I think atheists have good reason uh, to be good without God in what I call a moderate sense, uh, but not in, that, in, not in that such of a strong, universal, uh, uh, high sense of morality.
0: And when you say atheism you're you're really you're really and you clarify this later in the book, you really are talking about a like a naturalistic a metaphysically naturalistic worldview, yes, so the idea that uh there's nothing that exists that is outside the purview of our five senses and our scientific ability to measure those things, and if they are outside of our ability, we just haven't gotten there yet, essentially, that there's nothing supernatural, and so on naturalism. The only thing that we can be expected rationally to do is be good to the people who will be good to us, essentially.
1: Yeah. So, well, so two pieces there. The first part is um, I don't actually like the word supernatural as a way to define religion. I, in the technical, theoretical terms, I use the phrase superhuman powers. Uh, I have a whole other book on theory of religion that tries to define this. But yeah, that in reality, reality does not include the the, to- the totality of reality does not include not only gods and spirits or a god uh, or angels or anything supernatural, but also possibly uh, something super human powers that are part of nature. There are some religions that don't view Uh, super supernatural is beyond nature beyond creation or transcendent but part of that there are spirits in the mountain and spirits in the trees and the river so Mm -hmm. my, my account of atheism would rule all of that out and also it would rule out superhuman powers in more eastern samsaric religions like uh karma or brahman or something like that that would that would be that would be the grounds of those kind of religious traditions it's just straightforward naturalism the world came about in, in naturalistic purposeless right uh, undesigned form so that's the first that's the first part of what you asked the second part is yeah and if that's the way if that's the way reality is i think i think human beings have good reasons to mm, to uh, be moral to be ethical to be good to be self-sacrificing for people, for anyone who might affect them, that I think we have good reason to act on what philosophers have called enlightened self-interest, not selfish self-interest, but enlightened self-interest that Mm -hmm. have practical consequences that we can think about their ramifications. Um, I think we have good reason to act modestly good in the sense that to be really moral toward the people I care about and all of that will need to be buttressed by social contracts and punishments and sanctions of society. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't believe that there's a good reason to necessarily care about um, victims of disasters on the other side of the world.
0: And yet we do care about those things. And is, is your, I mean, some of us do. And you you, so, you, right. And I think you one of the things that I noticed throughout the book is um, sort of the desire, perhaps uh, this is a, a desire that we all have, regardless of our belief system, to have a universal framework for uh, ethics and morality so that it's not just some people, um, because as you point out, like the free riders will spoil Um, this, you know, any system and and do spoil that system. And so, you know, some of us care. And the question then becomes, why do some of us care? And I suspect you might say that it is a holdover from ethical teachings that we've received elsewhere, not from our genes or our evolution.
1: Well, I I guess I would say two things about that. The first is, I do actually believe that Adam Smith's uh, theory of moral sentiments is correct and that the whole uh, 18th century Scottish enlightenment idea of moral sentiments is right in the sense of, no, I think we have as, as a species inherited through evolutionary selection, uh, uh an almost ineradicable sense of, uh, revulsion toward seeing our fellow humans suffer. Right. I mean, it's not universal and there are plenty of instances where human beings actually enjoy seeing other people suffer, but let's just grant that there is something we've res- inherited that, uh, has to do with survival. It has to do with our tribe, et cetera. I do think there's something really elementary in, in the gut of most people that, you know, just to see other people suffer, especially meaninglessly, especially if they're innocent, I think that's there. Right. Uh, and that that affects ethics. I mean, that seems to me undeniable, but whether but that there's a difference between having an, a, a, a deep sort of instinctive reaction against other people's suffering There's a difference between that and actually uh, doing what it takes to enforce and advocate for a regime of universal human rights and benevolence and and making sure the Red Cross gets there and every life that possibly can be saved to see. that's a whole different order of magnitude of response.
0: Yeah, you could so, picture people, especially now in our political climate, I mean, you could picture a whole subset of our society saying, you know, what happens beyond these borders of the United States means nothing to us. Um, you know, that's that's somebody else's problem. Um, if those folks in Mexico are being uh, threatened by violence or or hunger, then too bad for them. Let's build a wall, you know, or... We could say, well, we're interested in Venezuela because they have a lot of oil. Um, so let's pay attention to that. You know, just, it is very Machiavellian in that sense—the way that many people go about their judgments, probably devoid of any real ethical reasoning uh, whatsoever. But, but you can—I I can see what, that that this is a problem, right? For for uh, human rights, that it's you can't demand it. I mean, with you can't say that there is an absolute authority that says that harming people uh, by let, allowing them to starve is wrong.
1: Yeah. So my my standard here is not, can we force people to take a moral point of view? My standard is, do we have, a, do we have the basis for persuading what I call a reasonable skeptic? S- somebody whose starting position is, well, why should I care about them? Okay. They're not unreasonable. They're willing to be persuaded, but they got to be persuaded. The question is, do you have a good, rational, coherent, compelling argument that not only includes an explanatory rationale, but a justifying motivation like, oh, yeah, you really should do something about this. That's the standard I'm trying to reach. And I also think back to your original question. I mean, clearly, empirically, our society and probably most every society includes a wide range of positions. On these questions, everything from uh, sadists who enjoy torturing other people, all mm. to, to um, people who just don't care either way, all the way to the most dedicated, moral, ethical, self-sacrificing, altruistic people. Right. So there, are a whole different range of people. The question is: Can is it, are the people who are devoted, altruistic? Uh, do they have a good reason, good reasons, uh, warranted rationality for, uh, persuading the, especially the people in the middle, like y- you should take, you should sacrifice more for other people. You should devote yourself more to other people. You should, uh, you should act more morally than you do. Not to mention, not to mention having a reason to persuade mean people not to be mean, to just be neutral, let's say. Uh, that That's, I think, what we're up against. Not I'm not saying atheists should be horrible people no, no. by any stretch. I think atheists can choose uh, to be incredibly good, and many do. The question is, is that an, in the end, is that an arbitrary, personal, subjective preference? Or is that a rationally grounded in the sense they have good reasons that they could make to other people? that should persuade those other people I'm pretty I'm not persuaded that the second that the second is what's really going on here on atheist grounds
0: So I I asked my girlfriend about this you know she's um she was raised uh, in a I would say nominally christian context in the south and then um has never been very religious herself is uh fairly um, inoculated against Christianity, I would say in large part just because of the culture wars in the United States and so forth, like so many people. So mm-hmm. she's not predisposed to be Christian, but she definitely uh, is not, tells me she's not an atheist. And I said to her, you know, we're trying, this is what I'm going to be talking to you about, this is what the book's about. And and she said, that doesn't make sense to me. She said, I, I just figure because people are human beings, they should be treated fairly. Um, and I, I feel like this is the argument that we get from... Philip Kitcher is essentially that, uh, or or what we might call other minds, you know, so I have a mind, at least I think I do, I suspect I do, and I evaluate how it feels to be treated a certain way, and I know what it feels like to be treated kindly, and I know what it feels like to be treated uh, with meanness and aggression or whatever, And I know that other people probably um, would feel the same way, and therefore I I want to treat them with dignity and respect because that's what I would want. I don't have a an objective sort of platonic source for my sense of uh you know the dignity of people. It's more it's more subjective for sure. It's definitely based off of my sense that I want to be treated with dignity. But so why isn't that compelling to a reasonable? skeptic? Because I I feel like I know some pretty, quite a few reasonable skeptics that 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 argument is convincing to them. Right.
1: Well, I guess I would say two things. One goes back to what you alluded to quite a while ago in this conversation. That is, I think it's very hard. uh, I'll put it bluntly. I think those sensibilities, I don't think it's a reasoning that works there. I think it's a sensibility. I think those sensibilities are riding on the continued current's of some millennia of um, inherited cultural inheritance that's powerfully influenced, not entirely, but powerfully influenced by things like uh, Christianity and, and, and ancient Judaism and, and contemporary Judaism, for that matter. In other words, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of religious baggage that's 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 helping to sweep that along, which makes it as a sensibility
0: make sense. So is part of but, your argument then that the part of the atheist overreach, it sounds to me like, is that a, a kind of an unwillingness to acknowledge mm-hmm. the breadth of history that's informing ethical uh, philosophy um, and some the part of the, maybe the overreach another way of putting it and obviously tell me what you think I, part of the overreach is this sense that totally independently from religion we can arrive at these things or not even independently from religion isn't the right way to say it maybe just historically out of context
1: it's it's exactly something like that and if i worry about these things here's what i worry about um by the way as an aside I'm not suggesting that religious people are so moral and act so wonderfully. This is really a philosophical argument about good reasons, not the way things actually necessarily shake out. Well, that's
0: a question I want to get to in a minute. Okay, so we'll
1: we'll get to that in a minute. But um, I guess what I'm saying, the the way I think about it is people today who've been formed by the cultural inheritance we have now, these things may make sense to them, maybe intuitively obvious. Well, why, if I don't want to suffer, why should anyone else have to suffer? But if these things are in fact dependent upon a, a, a cultural heri- heritage of religion, by the time our grandchildren and their children come along, those, if those inheritances have been sort of put aside, it may not make any sense to them. They may quote unquote, wise up and say, why should I, I mean, what I, what I care about is my not suffering. And why should I care about the not suffering of people in Indonesia after a tsunami? What does it matter to me? And I personally, as as hard as I've thought about it, I cannot come up with a persuasive reason, uh, to argue them otherwise.
0: Yeah, and it's not about, like you said, it's not about forcing people to do things they don't want to do, but it is sort of about convincing them, right, or compelling them, not by force, but by argument, that... That they at
1: least should recognize, yeah, I shouldn't be that selfish. And um,
0: But there's a limit, too, to like how much like I can do. Like I know me best, so I know how much money I make, and I know where I live, and my expenses, and so forth. There's a limit to how much I can do, and so there's a part of it that's like, like you said, it's motivation. It's like my heart is in it, like the sensibility is there. That you know, when I hear about children in Yemen suffering, or you know, anyone in Yemen suffering, I'm I'm moved by that. I don't I don't have it within my capacity to do anything about that. Um, other than maybe call my legislators. But maybe even that's not something people are doing, right? They're not even compelled enough to do that.
1: Yeah. So uh, there's the practical question of what actually can we change? But uh, the one thing I want to draw our attention back to are the writings that I'm engaging. Mm -hmm. Kitcher says explicitly, and uh, sorry, I lay this out in the book, we need to restructure our institutions of modern society to redistribute
0: resources. Go. Yeah, uh,
1: We need to change. I mean, basically, we need to change our civilization. So it's one of equality, egalitarianism, sharing, equal rights, et cetera. That, that's a that's a high demand. The question is a lot of a lot of reasonable skeptics are going to ask why should i do that again
0: right no i hear you because i think and i think you know marx had this notion that this was inevitable that there was a kind of uh you know to borrow another expression like an arc of history that was bending a certain way and mm-hmm. and that you know a kind of uh proletariat of the workers would emerge naturally out of uh, a kind of an evolution so a social evolution um And I'm, you know, I'm a humanist who, um, you know, I'm fond of saying, like, for me, my transition from theism to humanism meant there were no more promises. Christianity had promises. Humanism and atheism have no promises. And so the minute I take promises out of it, like, all bets are off in my mind. Like, I don't think that we, as the human species, necessarily... Survive the Anthropocene, like I don't. I don't think that's a given. Right. That's a given by any stretch of an imagination. I think probably the likelihood is that we don't survive it in in, in any form that we would recognize as life today. Um, I think we're too knuckleheaded, and and I think evolutionarily we don't have the 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 capacity or the ability to think in long scopes of history that way. Or or to think ahead that far. Like, I'm lucky to figure out what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, let alone what's going to happen in 200 years when I'm not even going to be here anymore. Um, And I think, you know, uh, environmental activists are struggling with this, right? Because they're saying the way that they try to appeal to our hearts is you think of your children, think of your grandchildren, you'll be gone, but your grandchildren will still be here. And what about them? Don't you want them to have a world worth living in? And, Up till now, people are thinking, yes, but what about, you know, the price of my hamburger? You know, like that's going to go up.
1: Yes. So one presupposition of mine, I think it's empirically true, that is running throughout my book and my argument is we should not overestimate the goodness of human nature. I actually think there's a human nature. Uh, A lot of people think that that itself is a a horrible idea. But I think humans have very strong tendencies in certain directions. And then they haven't changed for a very long time. And they're probably not going to change in the near future. So my observation is very many uh, modern Western, let's say, liberals, uh, and at least some of the atheists that I've read, strike me as having a really unfoundedly optimistic view of human beings that everyone's nice and good, really at heart. And if only we would get rid of a couple of the bad institutions and bad people and have the right kind of president, everything could be great. Mm. I just think that's completely naive. And and so I think, again, an, another way to look at my book is I'm trying to raise arguments so that all these naive liberal atheists don't wake up in the future in a world that's barbaric and that's bar, you know, that, that feels very regressive. It seems to me that very easily possible. And so if there aren't really good reasons to be able to offer, here's why we should care about other people. Here's why we should be committed to egalitarianism and dignity, etc., and rights without the, if if we have if there are feeble reasons to justify those there's a lot of people in the world that are just going to laugh at it and run over them especially if the world becomes a more bleaker mm. competitive a warmer uh place which is a, which is a lot of good reason to believe it's heading in that direction that's a concern right if we're if we're naive uh, like charles taylor the philosopher charles taylor mm. says we've over we've overstretched the our moral resources that we're relying on we should be more realistic
0: yeah and i definitely think technology which is sort of the new evolution in a way has sort of uh, outpaced our ethical ability to sort of manage what's coming i hope not yeah. but but i think yeah. it's certainly That's, possible
1: it's 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 potentially scary and I think, you know, when nine eleven happened, a lot of people were shocked that somebody could be that bad to do that. And even when Donald Trump was elected, a lot of people were shocked that somebody could support them. And uh, I believe me, I'm absolutely no Donald Trump fan, but the reality is there are a lot of people that are not happy, humanistic, liberal, sure, nice people.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of nihilism out there, you know, it's... Uh... I really was waiting for you in the book to bring up Steven Pinker and and Bill Gates and those guys who who um, you know really are optimistic. You know that hey, life's getting better and it's just getting better. And you know, or like I heard Michio Kaku once give a lecture, and and man, I, I wanted so badly. My my desire to believe him was the match to my desire to believe in God when I was losing my faith. Like I <laughs> I wanted so badly to believe that all this stuff I had been taught was true. Because the people that believed it seemed so happy. They seemed so content with this world in which, man, so-and-so died, but it's fine. They're going to heaven. We're going to see them again someday. And I just, I thought, gosh, it'd be so great to believe that again. And I listened to Michio talk about, you know, technology and the way that universe is going to, the earth is going to advance and the way that technology is going to advance and everything's going to be great. And I was just like, I, I can't get there. I just don't know how to get there. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I, I, I agree with about half of what Pinker says, and I strongly disagree with about another half of what he says. Sure.
0: But yeah, yeah.
1: One perspective is, um, you know, prosperity makes it easier to be nice, and th- you know, there are empirical studies about this. When sure. there's economic growth, uh, there are fewer wars. Some people call it uh, fossil capitalism or carbon capitalism. It's mm. uh, it's been built on a very particular fuel source that now seems to be uh, creating new troubles. And if everything keeps being prosperous, then maybe things will be okay. But the minute things start to get uh, scarce, we see scarcity, competitiveness, uh, humans can turn awfully nasty pretty quickly. And uh, again, just repeating myself, then the question is what kind of cultural resources do we have to justify institutions and to persuade enough people we shouldn't become barbarians.
0: We've talked about problems and the book is largely about overreach, but what, what is the you you'd spend a few pages talking about the advantages of, of theism or Christianity in in terms of um and like an all-knowing God and and some ethical uh norms or whatever. Like what what do you think is the best approach to this? Like how do we offer better reasons for people to be good?
1: Well, I don't think there's any magic bullet here and I'm not, I wouldn't say (laughs) here's the answer. Uh, In the end, what I end up saying is if, if you want to be an atheist, I think your best bet is Aristotle but I read very, very sure, few sure. contemporary atheists who take Aristotle seriously. And in the conclusion, I try to explore that. But
0: I love that so, bit, by the way. I think oh, that's really—and I think, you know, someone like, um, you know, Massimo Pigliucci would talk about stoicism and stuff that predates even Judaism as being yeah. resources.
1: The most persuasive to me is Aristotle, although you got to rehabilitate him because he didn't think much of women and he was perfectly fine with slaves. So it has yeah. to be— neo-aristotelianism, but stoicism has a lot going for it too. Although, you know, the stoics, as I understand it, still believed in something like a natural law Mm. and uh, that was universalistic. So the question is, how does that fit into an atheist worldview? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I guess what I would say about religion, at least of the Abrahamic uh, varieties is if you, if you can accept the presuppositions and that's a big if mm-hmm. and i guess many of your audience can't but if you can i think it's at least uh, a coherent rational argument for why human beings possess dignity well because they're made in god's image and god loves every last one of them and god called all of creation good it, I understand a lot of people find all that nonsense, like talking about witches and unicorns. But if you can get on board the presuppositions, the argument for respecting other people, caring for other people, justice, dignity, rights, love, it's rationally coherent, it seems to me. And furthermore, it's universal. Like You can't escape it. You can't say, well, society has said this is the law, but (laughs) I can get away with it here. In the end, you can't get away with it uh, if you want to. And you shouldn't want to get away with it. You should want to be w- working with the grain of the universe rather than against it, so to speak. So I guess, I guess that's what strikes me. It's a whole other discussion whether one can manage believing in God. But if for those who can, I think there are better reasons for a high morale, what I'm calling in the book, a high morality rather than just a modest or a moderate morality uh, grounded in those religious traditions.
0: Yeah, I I guess um, one of the things I wanted to make sure I got in here, not all atheists would, would be comfortable with sort of hard metaphysical naturalism. And I think... And I don't know what your reasons are exactly because uh, I haven't read that portion of your work for feeling suspicious or skeptical about su- the notion of supernaturalism. But I, I would wonder if some of my uh, dissatisfaction with the term naturalism might be similar in the reverse in the sense that I, I don't. there's things that don't seem to fall neatly into natural or supernatural. Um, for example, consciousness, uh, which is... Um, you know, a notoriously hard problem, and we, um, we, you know, is is our minds natural? Um, our our minds, um, they so far are impenetrable to, um, science, and and so does that make them part of the now? Na- I think our minds emerge from brains, and so in in that sense, I think it's part of natural processes. But what the mind does itself is is a little bit of a mystery, and. And I wonder if there's a way of of feeling like human dignity emerges, uh, is an emergent property along with consciousness, and that an ethic could be formed out of that notion as well. And then there are also atheists who are, and you touch on this in the book, are moral realists and who believe in moral facts that exist independently from uh, our minds and our um, our belief in them. Uh, they just are the way gravity is and the way that you can't really see gravity. and Well, you definitely can't see gravity, but you can only measure its results uh, in a similar way um, that you know, certain things are good and bad. And I, I understand that moral disagreement and all sorts of things are a part of people's skepticism about moral realism, but that is also an option out there for how a person who doesn't believe in a, a supernatural God could also form a sort of robust, uh, ethical vision. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think those are great points and these are things worth lots and lots of good discussion. Uh, a philosopher, uh, Russ Schaefer Landau is an example oh, yes. of, of what many call sort of, um, moral Platonism, or it's a kind of moral realism that doesn't have to depend on God. It's just it just says it's almost just an assertion just among the facts of reality are moral facts. It's just the part Mm. of the furniture of the universe. Right. Um, I, I talk about this in the book, some that may be the case and that may be the, be the case without God, but it certainly complicates a strong naturalistic view of the universe because then you have, you have objects that are part of reality that don't fit the picture that strong naturalist, uh advocates paying for us it's yeah. not clear where that comes from what their status is and so on on your first point i actually have another book called what is a person where i make exactly that argument that i'm so philosophically i'm a critical realist in terms of philosophy of science so i believe in emergence as 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 what explains how the reality is put together and i actually make exactly what you said the argument that di- dignity is an emergent property of human personhood And that emerges out of human bodies and their functions and social relations, just like mine does. And um, so I take consciousness to be part of natural reality, uh, not some kind of spirit that floats down out of the sky. Uh, It's emergent from brain. And uh, I make the argument that so is human dignity. Now, I've never said this in public, so this is the first time I'll say this and no one really cares. (laughs) You heard it (laughs) here
0: first, folks.
1: You heard it here first, and that is that's my very best a stab at offering a what I think might be a plausible account for human dignity that does not depend on the existence of God, but I myself uh am not entirely persuaded by my own argument, and there's a there's a huge difference between a potentially plausible account, hmm. which mostly will be plausible for people who are already inclined to believe it, sure. There's a difference between that and uh, a persuasive, good reason for a reasonable skeptic. I do not expect that argument to be uh, persuasive to a reasonable skeptic, which is unfortunate.:
0: Yeah, and I, yeah, I know, and it's, I, I think it's, it is the closest thing for me too. Like I want to be a more realist. I, I have a hard time getting my head around it the same way I have a hard time getting my head around other non-physical. Or like God, things like God and spirits and whatever, but I don't find necessarily that that convincing, which would lead me to my I guess my final question uh, before I let you go, which is that most people don't aren't rational in the way that they do really anything. I mean, we are rational to a to a point, but on an everyday basis, people aren't um doing research, amassing reasons, and then deciding to be, you know, to be moral or not moral in different ways. Um, But so what's the project here exactly? Like how, how, if people aren't really functioning that way anyway, aren't, wouldn't a notional sense of why we should be good, isn't that work for most people? I mean, how do people come at this? They're not coming at it the way you're coming at it.
1: Right. Well, uh, here's what I would say as a sociologist. So Immanuel Kant sort of set up ethics for us as the fully formed, well-formed, rational male adult sort of face, confronts situations and makes uh, rational choices. As you just said, that's not really how it unfolds in the real world. Uh, right. From my point of view as a sociologist, we have social institutions and we have cultures that form us over our entire lives, but especially as children. The question is, which, which, which kind of social institution should we have? Which kind of culture should we have? And those are not formed on a case-by-case basis. They're not formed in a straightforward, rational way. They are formed over long periods of time by cultural traditions, religious and otherwise. And even though most people do not approach rationality, you're correct in what you just said, in the way my book does, Cultures, in the end, need to have accounts. They need to have stories. They mm-hmm. need to have, ultimately, justifications. Why is it that we have welfare systems? Why is it that we care about the vulnerable? Why is it that we think X, Y, or Z is right or wrong? Why should we have? Why should we oppose wars if they benefit our nation, etc.? And so, in the end, we do have to have some people that can offer sure. good. Coherent rational justifications. That's my view. Yeah. Some people will say I'm just being an intellectualist, etc But I really think that's the case. Cultures are formed by ideas in the long run.
0: Yeah. And do you think time has anything to do with this, too? Like, I think if the reason I bring this up, it's just kind of floated into my head. um I've often struggled with the idea that humanism as a discipline or as a sort of worldview, if you will, is relatively new, especially by comparison to say Judaism or or Christianity.
1: No, I would say humanism
0: comes out of Judaism, right? <laughs> no, exactly. And I think there's actually Since
1: you mean uh, a humanism of a non religious sort,
0: right? Exactly. Like I mean, I think modern, contemporary, like American or British humanism is a movement, post enlightenment, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, But I agree with you, actually. I mean, just to make myself clear about that, I do agree with you that these are all connected and that humanism grows out of... I mean, humanism is what happens to, say, Judaism and Christianity when science proliferates in a way, you know, and and certain things become untenable.
1: Um, Well, now let me be a little argumentative. Wasn't there a lot of humanism in the Renaissance? And wasn't there a certain amount of humanism in the Greco-Roman cultures? even if it was barbarian. In of course. Ways?
0: Oh yeah. In fact, okay, I just so... talked to John Gray on a, a couple episodes ago and he's all about the Greek and Roman, uh, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, folks who basically, I mean, he's super bearish on, you know, humanism and it's claims, right. you know, he, he thinks that it's all a bunch of hooey. Like he, da, he, <laughs> he gives us no, no hope. I don't think, but, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. but I, I just wonder whether um, on, on moral claims, whether this emergent property, as you say, um, would make more sense if if we had been talking about it for 2,000 years that way versus, you know, God wants us to be good and, you know, our societies are pretty well baked into that sort of worldview because it's been so many centuries of, of that type of, uh, of reasoning.
1: Yeah, if I understand what you're saying, I think I agree in the sense of Uh, cultural categories in the end, it's not even ideas. It's like the basic categories of cultures and civilizations that the longer they have been ingrained in a culture and its institutions, the longer their half-life is so that even if you don't have the original beliefs that gave rise to them, they could still survive a heck of a long time. Uh, And uh, I would say belief in spirits and gods and such have a lot a longer pedigree in human existence than um than than modern humanism. That's yeah. true. Even if modern humanism
0: has deep roots. Right. Yeah, and roots that we frankly don't explore very much anymore, I would say as humanists, but Yeah,
1: there's there's too much lack of exploration. Like if you go back to the if you go back to the question of uh, human dignity and the and the UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights, mm. you know, there was a lot there was no consensus whatsoever about what was the basis of dignity. So they just set that aside and said, we're not going to talk about that. We all agree there is some kind of dignity. And so that's all we're going to assert. I think we need to revisit and have some really good, hard, deep discussions about what is the basis of human dignity? If we believe that, because a, I'm not sure everyone necessarily believes it when push comes to shove. Hmm. And B, if the world gets, as I said before, if the world uh, becomes less of an abundant, easy uh, place, I think the question of dignity is going to be, for a lot of people, it's going to be swept under the rug, and a lot of other things are going to take precedent over it.
0: We're going to need some of these categories to do a little heavy lifting for us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my goodness, I, I could talk to you about this stuff for, for so long, and I'm so grateful for your uh, the sacrifice of your time. Uh, yeah, I want to say
1: one other thing. Whether yes, please. Whether you it in. an earlier place or not this is an important point okay it's a technical philosophical point but uh the question i've been saying all along here uh we need good reasons Uh, the question is what makes a good reason Mm. Kantians believe that if you have an explanatory rationale the justifying motivation is enclosed in that Mm. like if you can understand oh, I don't want to suffer, therefore I shouldn't want other people to suffer, then I'm motivated to do something about that. That's a Kantian commitment. Hmm. In my book and in my thinking, uh, I think Kant is wrong about that and Kantians are wrong about that. I think a good reason needs both an explanatory rationale and a justifying motivation. Meaning, I think people can be perfectly reasonable in saying, I can see why you're telling me that that makes sense, but I don't care about it.
0: But I'm not going to do anything about it, yeah.
1: Not only I'm not going to do anything about it, but I don't care to even
0: be concerned about it. Yeah.
1: So for me, a good reason both explains the rationale and motivates someone to care about it.
0: Yeah, you really have set the bar pretty high, my friend. That. Yeah, I don't know if any of us can reach that. (laughs)
1: Well, there are some traditions that can do that, and Mm. uh, I uh, maybe atheism has resources to do that. But when you said that you have, what I'm doing is here is responding to friends when you said, you know, people that say, "Hey, if it's just a matter of other minds or other human beings, if if I understand things from my point of view, then I should care about them from their point of view." Mm. That's a very Kantian commitment that assumes a motivation to care about it is built into that un- rational understanding. Of okay. It's, from my point of view, it isn't.
0: Well, and maybe evidentially it's not there either, because there clearly are people. It's sort of how you started the book, saying, like, can atheists be good without God? And you quote Mark Twain saying, believe it, hell, I've seen it, you know? So <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's the same. It's the same empirical fact, it's true. Right, exactly. People do, in fact, say... I see your point. I definitely should care about these people. I just don't. Yeah. And they're not sociopaths. They're just normal people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a big, disturbing problem. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your book and for uh, all of your work. Do you have a website that people should visit if they want to dig in deeper?
1: Not especially. I'm, I'm not big on social media, but uh, I mean, I do have a website at Notre Dame. And- okay. It has resources about critical realism if people are interested in philosophy of social science. But uh,
0: awesome. No,
1: I've just I just write books and have conversations.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I definitely appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I hope this book is received in the right spirit, and I hope it promotes uh, some good thinking and conversations. Well, I hope and,
0: that this conversation will go towards that end. I, I think it will. Yeah, and believe me, I actually would be
1: really happy if somebody could show me how I'm wrong. Well
0: maybe someone will take you up on that we'll uh we'll see what we can do maybe uh engage in another like some more vigorous debate about it because i think it's regardless of which side or i don't know if there are sides maybe there's dozens of sides who knows but what no matter where you fall on these questions i think we can all agree that it's a super important question and becoming more important by the day Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. well thanks for your interest
0: We obviously only scratched the surface of these issues in the past hour, and I am eager to go much deeper into these topics, as I hope you are. If you have something you'd like to share, a thought that's come up for you, something that this uh, conversation has sparked in your mind, please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. I always love to hear from you. Um, Share your thoughts. Maybe you read an article. Maybe you had a conversation with someone about this. Maybe you had an epiphany about this topic and you just want to share it with me. I would love to hear from you. And perhaps with your permission, we can share those insights on a future episode of the podcast. We will be discussing these issues in more depth at the Life After God Facebook group. So please join the conversation there as well. Instructions about how to join the Facebook group are in the show notes. A book I'm reading next on this topic is Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality by James Davison Hunter and Paul Nedaliski. I'd also like to thank Aaron Robbie, co-host of Embrace the Void podcast, for talking with me about many of the issues that I talked with Christian about in this episode. He was a big part of the research that I did the last many weeks. Aaron is going to be a guest on this show in probably two episodes from now. And if you're not listening to Embrace the Void, I highly recommend it. As always, I'll put links in the show notes where you can easily find his podcast. Next week, my conversation is with Emily Joy, ex-evangelical, creator of the Church2 hashtag, and an activist in the ex-evangelical community. Thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Jeff Straka. And again, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell. And this has been the Life After God podcast.